This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey Blenders, it's Sean O'Connell, and we do not have a traditional show this week. The guys are taking some well-deserved time off for the holidays, but this is a huge week at the movies with so many things dropping, and one film in particular that we wanted to put on your guys' radars is Promising Young Woman, uh, which people have been talking about since the Sundance Film Festival way back in January, early this year. Uh, And a lot of times films will build up some buzz at that fest and then figure out the right time for them to drop and, and hit the most uh, the largest audience possible. Uh, obviously, Promising Young Woman sort of ran into the buzzsaw that was COVID and no theaters being around, uh, but it's finally coming out and people get a chance to see it. And uh, I kind of want you guys to go into it knowing as little as possible. Uh, it's got some amazing surprises and a tremendous lead performance by Carrie Mulligan. Um, boy, what can I even say? It's interesting because in this conversation with uh, director Emerald Fennell, uh, who was nice enough to come by and, and be a guest on the show, we do sort of dance around spoilers. We talk about how difficult it is for her to even do interviews on behalf of Promising Young Woman because anything that she sort of says about it is a potential spoiler. But even if you kind of know the setup of the film, it doesn't really ruin at all uh, the impact that it has throughout the course of the sort of dark comedic journey that Carrie Mulligan's character goes on. We even do get into the fact in this interview that the Golden Globes is putting Promising Young Women up for uh, the comedy musical category. Um, And there's 
there are no musical numbers in this movie, but the music is a pretty significant part of the film, and that's another conversation that we talk about. So I think, without a doubt, if you like our show and if you like the type of filmmaking that we usually celebrate, you're absolutely going to dial into Promising Young Woman, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear our interview right now with the writer-director of that film, Emerald Fennell. I'm kind of bummed that I missed this at Sundance because... By the time it got around to me, I a little bit knew what to expect from the story. And so I want you to tell me about the first time that you got to hear uh, Carrie's line reading uh, in front of an audience of where she says with clarity, uh, I said, what are you doing? Like, tell me about that impact. Well, the first time I heard it um, was at a test screening in Burbank. And it was amazing. You know, it was amazing because... I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the problem with this year, I guess, making movies this year um, and suddenly movie theatres being shut. That experience, I think, that we're all so, that we love and that is so important of having other people around you, other people laughing, other people gasping, other people, you know, other people's reactions is such a crucial part of any movie. So, yeah, it was just, it was, just wonderful it was just so exciting when people suddenly realized and actually you know for the throughout the movie actually there was a lot of that we had a fight we had a ton of we had a ton of stuff happen in the audience at the test screening in Burbank um there was a fight so, in your audience fight there was a fight there's a there's a scene in the movie that's qu- quite you know one of the more intense scenes and yeah a fight broke out <laughs> Um, somebody, somebody did, wasn't like, you know, somebody didn't like it. The other person did, you know, the person who did like it was saying like, if you don't like it, you can leave, don't ruin it forever. You know, there was just like a whole thing happening. And, and I decided to sit right at the back because I was sort of, you know, I sort of, so I don't want to sit with all of the producers and the distributors. I want to really experience it at the back. And then the moment I sat down between two people and, you know, one per- the person next to me was like, Oh, what is this? Why, what is this again? And the other guy was like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> how horrible. I can't imagine how horrifying anyway, that is. Then, you know, it started and luckily people were, you know, responding really well. And then, um, yeah, but I was super aware that the distributors and all the producers, everyone who'd like financed it was there. And I was, and I thought, oh, this is, this isn't great to have people screaming at each other over your movie, but you know, I guess it's good to have a reaction. It is, absolutely. I also find it, it's fascinating too because you talk about reactions. I, I thought that the screenplay does a really deliberate job of protecting uh, Cassie and some of her truths. Um, and, and the way that you decide to peel back uh, and let us learn more about her. Can you talk a bit just about how you approached how much of about her you wanted us to know? Because I thought in a way your approach kept us off balance. I didn't really know how much I could trust uh, from any of the characters that I was seeing on screen for a, a while into the film. Yeah, well, I think for me, you know, a really good thriller plot is as it's as much as what you leave out and as what you put in. And I think that certainly that's the wonder of movies is you've got a finite amount of time, right? And you know what you can put in, you know what you can leave out. And yes, it, it, for me, certainly writing it. It was very purposeful that we we weren't entirely sure what 
the motivations are, what has, you know, all, all of the things we learn in every scene, you sort of learn something new. Obviously, it's kind of a weird time now talking about it because necessarily you have to explain the movie to some degree. Sure. And, you know, anything that you explain about this movie, unfortunately, kind of like undercuts that. But yes, I think um, it was really important. And it's really important that Cassie, you know, doesn't always know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Like she's meticulous and she's obsessive and she's, um, you know, she's careful up to a point, but she also knows, particularly when things get more personal and closer to her, that she does like most addicts or people who are involved in kind of traumatic self-harming cycles. I think she knows the closer she gets to it, the more out of control she becomes. I want to, I've been doing junkets for a very long time, almost 20 years at this point. And I love when an actor does this on screen because I love to pick their brain about how they approach it. And I I hope you take this seriously because I I think the act of acting drunk on screen is really difficult Um, because when it's wrong, it's an immediate eyesore that takes you completely out of the movie. Um, Sure. And for your movie, it's integral. <laughs> so yeah. as an actor and as a director, can you please just talk about that process? Well, firstly, I'm incredibly lucky because, you know, Carrie Mulligan plays Cassie in this movie and she's she's just a genius. Yeah. She just is. She's one of those very rare people that's perfect, uh, who does something magic. Um, so I was never worried in in that department, but... I know that Carrie, not necessarily realizing that she's a genius, was kind of anxious about it. But what I said, and not to, I'm not giving it away because obviously it's in the trailer. Yeah. Um, but she's not actually drunk. Right. So that gives, I think as a performer, that gives you a lot of freedom because actually if it isn't perfect, which it was, but if it hadn't have been, it wouldn't have mattered so much because oh. actually see herself is not a professional actress. That's she's fascinating. Just doing oh. this thing. So, so it kind of made it, you know, it made it easier, I think. And that's for me such an important thing about make, you know, about directing and something that I felt very strongly about was that, you know, you really got to make people feel comfortable, find those ways of like, it's so nerve wracking, um, you know, and what actors do, you know, they, they take, they, they have a 10th of the time that every other department has. Right. And the thing that they do is the last thing and the thing that gets the most scrutiny at the end. So um, I'm kind of aware that for me, part of it, especially with scenes like that, is is that you feel kind of very free. But luckily, yeah, Carrie's a genius and Cassie's not really drunk. I didn't even think about the fact that you have an actress playing a character who's pretending. <laughs> that uh, the other and level is so a safety fun. net. Yeah, and that's so fun because, you know, depending on what the audience knows you then can play with the moments of, you know, behind the act too, the moments that people, that scene partners turn away, that you're able to slip, you know, there's, there are little, all of that stuff is so fun. And, you know, it just gives you such an opportunity to sort of, yeah, to to kind of, so that suddenly, you know, the audience, something that had been surprising to them is now something they're in on. I'm so glad you mentioned her scene partners because I wanted to go down that route as well, too, because with each passing scene and it's not giving anything away, we get yet another brilliant character actor <laughs> who Carrie gets to play off of. Um, 
I'm sure you look at it as just a complete, you know, uh, embarrassment of riches. Uh, yeah. you're, you're a cast, but please uh, talk to me about just recruiting them and and how you felt being able to get these people to to really fill in the gaps and the cracks of these scenes. I mean, it was unbelievable. I think the thing is, is about making a film, like certainly making your first film and an independent movie, I think because focus are on board and they're incredible. People think of it as a studio movie, but it's very much an independent movie with an independent budget that we shot in 23 days. So, you know, we were, it was, it was one of those movies that like we, it, we man managed to kind of get it in the can because every single person who worked on it was just amazing. But so kind of knowing that, I think when I was writing it, I, I knew that partly I would have to be, you know, I would have to be aware of what would, what, what we would be able to do, how we could add value, you know, how you could do things like that. And I think what I love about road movies, what I love about, you know, any kind of um, almost Western where people are kind of on a journey and they meet people along the way or an allegory, all of those sorts of things is you can ask someone that you never think in a million years could, you know, would to come in for a day. And because we shot in Los Angeles, um, you know, for lots of reasons, actually, we shot Los Angeles just as a generic, you know, just any American city, but, but we shot there, um, partly because we had such short prep time that when we were there already and I was very pregnant. So I think everyone was worried about <laughs> flying me anywhere, um, <laughs> rightly. And, um, and so we were there. And so, you know, it was a different situation because then you say, look, it's next door, we'll pick you up, you know, and you get to act with Carrie, one of the greats. And, you know, and so you hope that the parts are tantalizing enough that people want to do it and Carrie's so good. and. And yeah, it was unbelievable because, you know, we had a list of, we had a dream list and everyone on it is in the movie. Really. Did you write with people in mind? No, I didn't. I, I'm not very good at that. I think it, I think sometimes it can be a bit in, inhibiting, but I definitely knew that I wanted the people that Cassie encounters to be people that we really trust and really like and really respect and have crushes on and feel familiar with because you know, this is a movie about good people doing really bad things. Right. And so you need to stretch the audience's allegiances. You need to kind of start everyone off at a place of sort of comfort and complicity. So really to do that, you want the guys in this movie to be crushable and funny and, you know, nice seeming. Right. Um, 23 days is ridiculous. Uh, I can't believe that. <laughs> I can't believe that's a reality. You will, uh, you know, you're never going to get a chance to have the first day on your first feature again. Um, were you even be? Were you able to be precious about this? Is what I'm going to film on my first day. This is what I'm I'm saving for my last. Or did you? Was everything um, just when you could? No, I well, luckily I just had the most brilliant first and brilliant kind of amazing producers who knew kind of what I knew which was that as chronologically as we could shoot it it would be best okay we so loosely we shot the end at the end and then you know and then but that was the kind of priority but no absolutely as you say it's just like it was however we could do it mm -hmm. and it, it had this kind of double um knife edge because obviously the movie is it's all it's pretty much a different location sometimes too every day so then you have that kind of added horror. If you drop anything, oh. it's, it's finished. You can't go back. You've got the actors. But, but you know, I like that stuff. Okay. There's something very 
thrilling to me about that. There's something about, um, there's a pleasure in getting stuff done. Okay. And I kind of like, I think that often that's a, that takes a back seat for a lot of people, but actually you've got to make it. It's all very well to have the, you know, vision and everything, but you really need to practically do it. And, and for me, that's just a ton of planning, obsessive, um, yeah, obsessive, obsessive planning, detail planning, uh, to the point where I drove pr- pretty much the head of every department, probably quite mad. Um, and also working with the best people in the world who totally are on board. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, but it, it was amazing. Do you think um, your experience in television helps with that too? Because TV seems to work at a quicker pace. I think I think certainly acting in TV helped. The thing about because I was the head writer on Killing Eve season two, and because it's a it's a it's an American show, but but made in Britain, it's much more of a British setup. So you don't really have a traditional showrunner that who, who's kind of on set in the same way as you have here. It's mostly a writing job. Okay. So really on Killing Eve, even though it was unbelievably thrilling and I was EPing it and kind of over the whole thing I was very rarely on set so it wasn't that part of things wasn't you know it didn't wasn't too useful but um being on call the midwife as an actress so I I was in a tv series in the UK for four years an amazing tv bbc series oh you don't have to tell me my wife is a huge fan (laughs) huge fan it's the best ever. And what was so wonderful about it was that everyone who works on it is so lovely. It's such a family. Um, and, and so, but what you get is you get a different director, a different DP every block. Mm. And so, and all of them are amazing, but you kind of, but because you've got the same crew, because you've got the same cast mostly, you kind of start to see what works, what doesn't work so well, what saves time, what loses time. You know, if you're paying attention, that's, that is like the biggest learning because on set experience is really difficult to get. Right. So that for me was the most useful thing. And then working with people like Joe Wright and, you know, all of those kind of directors and getting to see how they work was helpful too. Joe Wright's a genius. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's sort of, he just, and the way that he works was so inspiring because I mean, it wasn't something, sadly, we were able to do on um, this movie because we just didn't have time. But like, you know, a really in, intense rehearsal process where everyone gets to know each other very well. Like, I'm barely in his movies. I have like a couple of lines, but that, but he makes sure everyone is kind of, yeah, his eye for detail is very, very particular. And that's kind of, that's wonderful to watch because there's a way of, do, you know, it's good to see that people can do that without being megalomaniacal right. or... You know, I mean, I think I probably occasionally did veer into the megalomaniac because, <laughs> again, it's that sort of that you there's a sort of head girl, head mistressy sort of thing that, you know, part of your job inevitably is chipping everyone along. Yeah. Um, and ticking them off, mostly Carrie when they're giggling too much. At, um, Jennifer Coolidge's brilliant jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so did you listen to the Tom Cruise audio recently and you were like, I get that. I haven't listened to it yet. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. I, do you know what? <laughs> I obviously, I mean, totally agree with the, the root of it, which is that people should be so responsible at work. Yeah. But I haven't listened to it because I'm terrified of being shouted at. Oh, really? I know he's not shouting at me. And that's <laughs> but genuinely like... If I hear or see anyone shouting at someone, I get I, it. Just makes me 
want to burst into tears so i can't listen don't listen no it'll be too much (laughs) it'll be too much for you (laughs) um i would like to talk about something that I, i found to be really difficult of a balance and i'm curious how you approach as a filmmaker uh the camera can very easily fetishize uh, a leading lady. And yeah. there were a, lo- a lot of really strong moments when you needed it to be- get an intimate shot, but not overly fetishize, uh, Cassie. Mm. Can you just talk about your approach to that? Totally. Well, I think the thing is, is that I I suppose so much of Cassie's sort of persona in her day-to-day life, as well as her evening pursuits, but mostly during the day, she does use her appearance to subvert and hide in plain sight and it stops people asking too many questions stops her appearing kind of it it, it gives the appearance of functioning so part of filming her obviously has to um include that she is sort of she is beautiful and she does dress in a, a sort of hyper feminine way to um yeah weirdly to kind of hide so so it is sort of so, so you're kind of necessarily having to film that. But when it came to anything intimate mm. or, um, you know, there's a scene where, you know, you, there are a couple of scenes where you have to see her knickers, panties, as they say in America, which truly I believe to be one of the perviest words ever. There's no way to use very... it in, in conversation casually without right. it just sounding no, you're a creep. Especially with an English accent, you definitely sound like a pervert. But <laughs> yeah. um, so there are a couple of things you see her knickers, her underwear. And you know, so it was just it's it's everything that you expect. It's like keep, keeping far away. You know, we don't need to be we don't need to be close for that, making sure nobody is there. Um, and and you know, kind of things like there's a moment where she has to take her clothes off and we don't look at it we mm. turn away because i'm not really interested look here's the thing about women taking their clothes off it's lovely to watch women take their clothes off because women are lovely and you know that's fine but i think the truth of it is is it you don't learn anything it's not useful and it's certainly not useful in this film and i think that you know there are very rare moments where you need to see like nudity or people's bodies and um and actually for me i find i often find it really like takes me out of something and i and i can't help but think of the actors doing it so um so for me that that moment was about what does it feel like to take your clothes off in front of men you don't know what does it feel like you know what what are they feeling i want to see the kind of you know for that for, for this scene we used a phantom because i wanted to go into kind of really poor detail like I'm sorry by poor I mean P-O-R-E mm. wanted to get in their pores down the throat you know the erections the teeth the eyes the kind of red face like that's the stuff because that's not what you see you know when you when you watch women taking their clothes off in movies that's all you're seeing but I'm not really interested in that right. I just want to see um what their experience it didn't serve that this story in at all in the least bit that's why yeah. I had to assume it was a, kind of difficult to, to balance yeah, well, and I think actually, you know, what's good in this film is, is I hope well, one of the things that was important to me at least is you don't, you you very rarely see anything. Mm-hmm. With any, you know, it's very, it's very, well, it's, you know, it's difficult to describe without it being in a spoilery way, but things happen. A lot of things happen. But, but I, yeah, I never, I don't think it's necessary at all to see particularly, you know, 
um, there, yeah, there are some things I just definitely don't want to see. And there's, there, there was an incident in the movie that I definitely didn't. No. Uh, to this end, can I get your take on the fact that your film has been submitted to the Golden Globes in the comedy and musical category? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a really interesting one. People keep asking me about it. But, you know, I don't have an answer because I have always described Promising a Woman to People as a dark comedy. Oh, really? Okay. It's as much a dark comedy to me as it is a thriller, as it is a kind of meditation on trauma, or, you know, I suppose whatever slightly more grandiose term you use it. I think it's really interesting because obviously this has been a conversation that maybe I wasn't expecting. And so I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think that we still think of comedy, the word comedy, we still have this idea that it's glib or light sure. or maybe that comedy can't, but for me, the only way I've ever been able to communicate the things that I find really difficult and troubling is with humor. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know is the answer. I think that the good thing is, is I'm sure the HFPA will kind of decide what they think is right. And I feel, I mean, basically just delighted to have been submitted. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I really do think it is at least, you know, at least in big part a comedy. I think anything that keeps the film in the conversation as we go through, you know, the, the grind of the awards season is good well, for you. Think, yes, but I also think that if you, when, when we watch it with an audience, the predominant response is laughter. Okay. One of the most, you know, that for me, the gears of this is it's, you know, if it's tension and release, it's always the tension of the drama and then the release of the comedy. Right. So they're kind of equal to me. Right. I, I will get you out of here on this last one um, because thanks to your film, I was singing Britney Spears' Toxic um, for about a week afterwards. Um, so just sound choices, you know, soundtrack choices can be so integral to the success of a film. Obviously, growing up in the 80s, I, I know so many movie soundtracks. I would assume that you have a lot of them as well, too. Uh, what was the importance of picking the right songs and what are, what are the, some of the songs that you uh, had to fight really hard in order to get? Well, I was really lucky because, again, I just worked with a team of completely wonderful, supportive people um, at Capitol Records and Sue Jacobs, who, again, like I was just punching well above my weight. Sue Jacobs is the best music supervisor in the world. Um, I knew I wanted, there were things in the movie that were in the script that were on the playlist that I listened to a lot and sent to people. Um, and girls, um, girls, uh, boys rather, by Charlie XCX. Um, yeah as an opening to the movie seemed to be perfect because it has everything that I like. It's, it's sort of, um, it's bubble gummy and poppy with this sort of thing. The thing that Charlie XCX does so well is a slightly uneasy kind of razor blade underneath. And, you know, the first thing you hear in this movie is the other lyrics. I was busy thinking about boys. Yeah. Naturally, that's what the movie is. I, I was busy thinking about boys. <laughs> and it's the same with, you know, it's raining men. You look at it's raining men and it's it's just a banger that everyone's used to but imagine what it would be like if it was raining men right <laughs> it's got this kind of violent you you sort of listen to it in a different way that's what i love it's you know again something wonderful from the king and i the most romantic song ever written about a man who is incredibly cruel to his woman who loves him but right. occasionally does something wonderful right 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 it fits the tone. Emerald, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate being able to talk about this fantastic movie with you. Thank you very, very much. Lovely talking to you.
We would love to thank Emerald Fennell for being a guest on the show. Phenomenal interview, a really talented filmmaker. We cannot wait to track the progress of her career uh, here on Real Blend because uh, I assume she's going to be up to some amazing things coming up. And speaking of amazing filmmakers that we were lucky enough to have on the show, uh, we do not have a full show this week. We'll be back next week with brand new episodes. But if you want to go back and listen to some of our most recent ones from December, in particular, uh, Patty Jenkins joined the show to talk about Wonder Woman 1984. That movie is going to be in select theaters and on HBO Max on Christmas Day. And of course, Paul Greengrass is bringing uh, Tom Hanks and the news of the world to theaters where possible. So if you um, want to go out and see a big screen Western and theaters are open near you and you feel safe going uh, to do so, please go check out News of the World and then go back and listen to our interview with Paul Greengrass. Uh, In our upcoming episode, we're going to go through our top tens on the year and we will have Pete Doctor from Pixar's Soul. So some really cool things to look forward to and some interesting interviews to go back and listen to. Plenty of Real Blend content. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For the Blender family.